Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of GTM Got 10 Minutes, brought to you by Same Logic, action-based in-product surveys powered by AI. I'm your host, Dwayne Samuels. Today, our guest is none other than Alex Weingart, a product management expert. He's a multidisciplinary leader who's passionate about product strategy, and uh, he has been at the forefront of transforming strategy into meaningful consumer experiences. From leading mobile music at, at Microsoft to product at uh, Shopify, Alex's journey is packed with insights, lessons, and experiences we can all learn from. Hey, Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, Dwayne, happy to be here. Awesome. Uh, great to have you. So, Alex, uh, could you... Tell us how you got into this industry. Like, what caused you to become um, to become interested in product and, and building products? How how did that all start? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of an accident. I got an internship at Microsoft and fell in love with it. PM internship at Microsoft. That's the very short answer. the The slightly longer answer is, you know, when I was in school, I was actually a mechanical engineering major. This was geez, back in uh, graduated in two thousand twelve. About halfway through, I realized two things. One, I like software a whole lot more than mechanical engineering. And two, it was a bit too late to switch my major. And so I was trying to find a way that I could do software without like only having, with only having basically a small amount of experience. And that combined sort of like, you know, in all the group projects I had done, uh, typically was the person who was organizing, delegating, planning, and all that sort of like, oh, okay, maybe I should try this PM thing that I heard about at Microsoft. And turned out it was the best summer of my life. This was sort of mm. uh, right about at the dawn of mobile. Uh, I was working on Windows Phone. Uh, it seemed like Windows Phone could still be a thing. And uh, and I was working on the entertainment team on music and games and just fell in love with everything, with the company, the business, and the discipline. And I've been doing it uh, for about 12 years now. Oh wow, um, yeah, I I was a big fan of uh, Windows Phone as well. Um, that the um, what what did they call the UI again? It's very tile based. Metro uh, was the Metro design UI. language, and then exactly. the live tiles was the uh was yeah the feature from the start screen. Yeah, yeah, and that carried over into Windows, I think, as it well. Did yeah. Um, you you have an impressive background uh with, with product strategy. Could you share with us personal journey? And like how you transitioned, you know, like from uh, just uh, like from from everything and becoming to like a lead product manager. Like how did you like um, from from getting into the industry and like being at Microsoft? How did you strategically get to the different uh, roles you've 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 gotten after Microsoft? Yeah, um, it's a combination of luck and and also being deliberative about the type of opportunities I went after. The luck part, you know, yeah, pretty early on in my career at Microsoft, and I can go in more detail here if you're interested. I uh, I ended up um, leading a comprehensive overhaul for an, uh, the music app, um, and this was our you know, was a Windows app, the, the the music app on Windows Phone, and having responsibility for the whole experience end to end. Um, really only about a year and a half into my tenure as a PM is is the relatively uncommon thing, especially at a big company. And uh, so that was the, the fortunate part. And what I found uh, was that it's, you know, pretty awesome to be like in control of an end-to-end -end experience and hard to go back, I think, when, to just owning like, you know, individual screens if you're a UX-focused PM or maybe like particular like API endpoints or whatever, if you're more like a technical, like technical PM. So 
that, that was sort of the luck part. And, and thereafter, I was pretty strategic about trying to find roles that um, facilitated more end-to-end -end ownership. Um, and in so doing, I really built up the, the that strategic muscle. That is to say, thinking when you're thinking about experiences and end-to-end -end capacity, um, you're really thinking about it from the um, from the overall user experience first and foremost, end to end. The moment that they, from the moment that they have a need to the moment they first like uh, learn about the product, get engage with the product, and continue to learn and continue to use the product ideally, right? And the other thing that I would add, the sort of the systems thinking context, is not just sort of like thinking about particular feature in the context of all of everything else that's happening, but also the product itself and how it interplays with the entire business as you sort of rise rise through the ranks or, or maybe you start your own company, it becomes really critical to understand the relationship between product and finance and product and, and marketing and, and all these other different disciplines and, and how your business actually makes money and the product sort of interplays with that. And so, you know, especially like when I was director of product and design uh, for a portfolio of entertainment brands, I really got a lot of exposure thinking through, you know, not just one product, but many products and how those products directly contributed to revenue. Um, and once you have sort of have that, then you're, you're really sort of on your way to, you know, running the whole show. And, and having a balance is, is very uh, important uh, with being a PM, like balancing strategy between execution. Um, yeah. So how, how does your, your day-to-day -day tend to look like when, when you're, uh, and, and maintaining that balance between uh, strategy and execution? Yeah, it depends on the role. It depends on the needs of the role. Um, so I have like, I've flexed a lot over my career, um, big companies, small companies, and I see is large teams under being an IC or having large teams under me, in some cases, teams of teams. And so, you know, the nature of, of how you spend your time really depends. I would suspect for like for many of your listeners who, you know, they've gotten maybe like a year or two of experience and they're trying to, you know, get more exposure to strategy, uh, a good time split would be... a. I, maybe actually think of it less of, as a time split and more of and, and sure you carve out a sufficient amount of time to be operating from a plan. So a lot of people fret like, oh, I'm spending too much time on execution or, or you know, or, or even de definition. And I kind of think of it in those three categories, like product strategy, product definition, you're thinking about the solutions and whatnot and sort of working with engineering to like implement them. And I'm like, oh, I'm spending way too much time on execution. I don't have time enough time for strategy. I would challenge people to think about like, what um, what would they be spending their time on specifically? So if you have a roadmap and you think your roadmap is pretty good, you don't need to artificially be spending more time on that. And if you're if you have a roadmap, but maybe you weren't involved in the creation of roadmap, then that's an opportunity to speak with your manager or um, or maybe maybe more senior peers to um, to see how you can get involved in, in in starting planning that. But it's not a specific amount of time. I think it's about Making a making sure that you know you do have a really good plan in place that there's some structured hypotheses and bets that are sort of synergistic with each other, and then b that you know you have a role in shaping that, um, especially as you get more senior. And uh, pretty much for everyone who's at like a senior role and has like been at this for a while, you have like highs and you have lows. You've you've been I'm pretty sure you've been faced with like multiple challenges uh, along this journey. Could you share a few key lessons? that uh, these experiences have taught you, particularly around product development and strategy? Yeah, uh, there's a there's a couple of things here. So I find it pretty 
useful to talk about failures. You typically get your most, at least your most powerful lessons through failures and sometimes the best lessons too. And so I was at a startup called Soch, uh, which was an events marketplace, helped you figure out how to spend your free time. And uh, the difference between it and like Eventbrite, for instance, was that they were highly curated, um, almost like journalistically, um, the best events going on in the city. Really cool idea. But uh, like a lot of startups, I think we, uh, we suffered, I think, maybe two from, from two really big mistakes. From, from strategic mistakes. Um, and then I will also go into like a third, like maybe more personal mistake. So the first is probably maybe heard like growth before engagement or growth before product market fit is the whole like growing a leaky bucket phenomenon. Um, and we basically, um, we basically juiced our business so that it appeared like we had product market fit, but we didn't. So let me give you a couple of examples. We had all these sort of like very rich incentives, 25% off, 50% off to get people to book these different events. And so it looked like the numbers were going up, but really we were like heavily subsidizing it. Or on the supply side, uh, we had this, uh, what we call the seat filler program, where basically, you know, if you had an event, for instance, where uh, where a merchant you know would offer like these prefixed dinners for people. If we couldn't sell it, we would still pay the merchant anyway because that was necessary to sort of make them happy and get this really great inventory on our platform. And so, from one lens, you could look at it and say, "Oh, well, these are like you know these are you have to start a marketplace somehow, right? Like you have to use these incentives." But uh, we had we were deluded ourselves into thinking that we had product market fit because we were seeing growth, but it was all sort of contingent on these incentives. And so, you know, when the money run out, runs out, obviously like, you know, you're, you're, um, you're kind of SOL. And then the other things that's growth versus, you know, prioritizing growth ahead of product market fit or ahead of engagement. But the other big strategic mistake that we made is uh, breadth over depth. And we were really trying to do a ton of things, which um, frankly, like it was, it was a great like vision, right? We wanted to help you figure out the best things to do in the city at any given time. And unfortunately, a lot of these businesses are, are quite different. Like, you know, figuring out what to eat or um, what bar to go to or what hikes to go on or what concerts to visit or, you know, what pottery classes are available. Like these are all like very like different problems. And some of them, frankly, are more common and more important than others. Like if you think to your own life, like, the vast majority of things that you do in the city is eat, right? You're going to go out to eat. Um, for, that's the case for most people and our data reflected that. But we were still trying to go after this broader swath. Uh, if we weren't, we just, I think we could have used a lot more focus and developed more specific solutions. Uh, and the other thing I would say too, is like we were focused on multiple different types of users. We were building products for users, products for merchants, internal tools, um, we had, and our resources were split up in that way, but it was super clear back to the whole growth before engagement thing, like the most important thing would have been to focus on the end user booking the experience, because at the end of the day, that's the value that merchants care about, right? Actually getting people into the various services that, that they're providing. And, uh, and, and anyway, all that lack of focus and going after all these different types of users and different types of industries led to um, a really fractured investment um, that was not um, sufficient. And so long story short, Soch went under. Um, and my personal failure 
uh, was I recognized these things a couple of months in, but being sort of a newer PM, especially to the company, this was right after Microsoft, I didn't really say anything to our executive team. So that's my, that's my failure. I, I, I raised, asked a couple of questions, but I, and maybe it wouldn't have made a difference, uh, but there was a really critical learning for me to be more vocal, you know, if I saw the train uh, is headed off the rails. Yeah, that's, that's very salient advice. Um, and I think a lot of times when you're on a team and you're not the most senior person or they're, most people are, are a bit more senior than you are, you're a bit to, afraid to, to speak up. Yeah. But um, yeah, this one is uh, yeah, very, very important. Um, in, in a data-driven environment, experimentation is, is key to understanding user, um, uh, user needs, right? Um, can you discuss the process that you follow um, uh, to conduct these experiments? And, and how do you yeah. um, use the feedback to like, iterate on different things that need to be worked on? Totally. So I have a slightly contrarian viewpoint on experiments. Um, and that is, I think that in many cases, they're vastly overused. Um, so I don't, I don't know if anybody in your audience or, or maybe you're familiar with uh, Casey Winters, pretty like he was like Eventbrite CPO and he's sort of a you know PM influencer, if you will, been around, been around a lot of different startups, Grubhub and whatnot. And um, he had a really good example on his logic, uh, on his uh, podcast with, um, with Lenny. Uh, we're talking about like signed in experiences. Like there are enough great examples from really big companies on what a good like authentication experience is. You don't need to like A, B test that. You can take some inspiration from other people out there and just ship it and like not waste the time trying to test something. Um, and then the second thing is like a lot of people are working at companies at startups where it's even more time prohibitive to get a signal. Maybe you have like a couple thousand users, maybe even 10, 20, 30,000 users. And you know, you're going to need to A-B test something for months. And you, don't just, you just don't have time. You, you need to take the risk uh, and see what happens. And I think all too often, you know, people want to like, rightfully like want to be structured about their thinking. They want to be scientific, but it, like just recognize that the trade-off in a lot of cases is, is time. And, uh, and so I, I would challenge, I would challenge everyone in the audience to think, you know, for every single feature, think about like, what's the right way to measure success? Is it an experiment or should we just ship it, do a chronological comparison and see what the results were? Um, uh, or, or, or maybe there's other methods too, right? You could do use, of course you can do user research and user, user surveys and, and whatnot. So now if you do decide an experiment is right, you have a sufficiently large audience and the change is very risky and there's not really like a lot of um, competitive insights to be gleaned. Um, I think there's a couple of things to, to keep in mind. Firstly, uh, again, what is the specific uh, metric you're trying to move? What's your hypothesis? Um, and what are some of the counter metrics that you might that might be impacted that would still preclude you from shipping? So, and together, like you should have a very clear framework around what's going to happen in every situation that could emerge uh, after you get the results back. I think all too often you're like, oh yeah, we'll do an experiment and they get the results back and they're like, oh, I'm actually not like sure what to do now. A very common one it's new is that it's neutral. I right? didn't do anything. Are you going to ship it? Are you not? Well, sometimes you will and sometimes you won't. Sometimes like you feel like there's added user value, even if it didn't manifest in, in the numbers, maybe you've simplified some code or whatnot. In other cases, you've added a lot of complexity. It might be harder to maintain. And actually you wouldn't want to ship it if it's neutral. Um, it's a very obvious one, but you can get all sorts of other cases where you're looking at like one key metric, but you have three or four counter metrics and some things are going up and some things are going down. I think it pays 
uh, dividends to be very crisp on that in advance. And then the the last, second one thing I'll mention is the only other thing I'll mention is just fairly obvious. It seems it's going to sound fairly obvious, but actually it, it, it's it's screwed up all the time. Um, and, uh, and that is making sure you actually have the sufficient amount of tracking or logging, whatever you want to call it. The analytics are in place. We're actually going to be able to measure what you intend to measure. And every single company that I work at, this has always been a problem where analytics aren't sufficiently in place. And so you need to validate ahead of time that, that those uh, analytics are going to be in place when, when, when you ship the experiment. Got it. That's cool. So, so as a, as a product management expert, you're, you're constantly faced with like many complex problems as well. You know, what, what's one of the most challenging aspects as, uh, as, as a, as a PM and, uh, how should one, uh, how do you tackle those, um, those, those challenges? I like to think a lot, something I've been thinking a lot about recently and, and it, and if, if and when you become a manager, this becomes even more complicated, but I like to think a lot about this trade-off, um, this sort of a three-way trade-off, uh, not the one you're thinking of, uh, which is sort of like features versus or feature scope versus time versus um, resources, but a different three-way trade-off. And that is autonomy. So that is to say like the, the level of freedom you have between management and, and, um, and ICs, collaboration, the extent to which you are seeking alignment from cross-functional peers and time. And there's a really interesting dynamic here. Uh, and the obvious one that you could say is, is like, uh, is that um, let, let, let's just take collaboration, collaboration and, and time that like you can either be highly collaborative, wait till you have consensus, um, but that might, that might take a more time, right? Or you can try to, you know, push things through really quickly and try to get some signal by getting something in the market, but that may come at the cost of, of collaboration. You may have to overrule people or whatnot. Uh, you may not even be able to do that in certain cultures. Like a lot of this is driven by, by the sort of the culture of the company. But I like to think a lot about that. Does the company have more of a collaborative culture or like a move fast and, and break things culture? And then the, a similar sort of dry, dynamic exists between autonomy and time, right? But uh, what's so interesting about, I think, autonomy in particular is that you could say like, you could say that that, uh, you know, the more thing, the more top down things are, like the less time there is for discussion and maybe um, maybe the faster you can move, right? Of course, there's risk about not doing the right thing, but, you know, you're, you're, you're shipping things faster, right? Whether or not the right things, you know, who knows? But what's super interesting about it is that you can actually get to the point where you have so little autonomy where actually it slows things down. And so it's like, it's like, it's not even a trade-off at that point. It's just like you, you're both variables are de decreasing. And this is sort of the a case where like um, you, you don't even, not only do you not have autonomy to determine strategy and roadmap, um, but, um, but even down to like particular execution decisions, you know, making a last minute trade-off because something was more difficult or whatever and, and scoping it out or whatever, or whether or not to, to like ship something like you could end up in situations where where management is so involved in the day to day that it's actually slowing things down, and so you never want to be in that position. So anyway, like I bring this up because I think that you, that sort of last part, notwithstanding, like I think that's fairly obvious. You don't want to be there. If you are, you should probably find a different company. But I think it's worth thinking about sort of the type of environment that you want to be in. 
um, across each of these three dimensions. And there's not a right answer, by the way. It's completely valid to say, like, it, it sounds horrible, but it's completely valid to say, like, I want to be somewhere that moves really quickly. And the trade-off for that is there will be less collaboration. And, mm. and, 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 and similarly, it's completely valid to say, like, oh, I want to be in a very like collaborative environment. And I, but I also don't mind if things move a little bit slower. So I, I think I challenge, like I've been, I think a lot about that for myself. That's, I think it's one of the most challenging things is figuring out as an organization where you want to be. And then I think it's also really important that as an individual, you think about, about where you want to be. Mm. And th I think this is a perfect segue into, into my next question, which is around teams and building teams, you know? So what advice can you share with, with listeners who may be building their own teams um, probably yeah. from scratch. And uh, for uh, people who are in teams uh, or in companies who they don't really have, they're the, the first PM there, you know, or second yeah. PM and they're trying to get, you know, it's, it's like a very fast moving train and they want to get all the heads they need to get to get things done. What advice would you, do you have around that? Yeah, totally. And, and just for some context for the audience, um, I've built teams from like hiring people. I've inherited people. I've had people reorged into me. So my, I've, and I've, I've hired cross disciplines too, right? Not just product and design reporting into me. And then of course I've been involved in hiring and like cross-disciplinary like matrix reporting structures as well. So wealth of uh, experiences here. And it, it like, it's such a cop-out, but so much depends on like the particular situation. So maybe let's focus in on, I think your first, your first uh, scenario was like, was one where like you're maybe at a larger organization, but you're like building out, building out a team. And you know, maybe your first time manager and you're they're hiring, trying to hire PMs. Is that, is that right? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, in this case, like you have a huge advantage, which is you've probably been there for a while and you like, you know, the product areas, right. And you're good to come in as the expert. And, and for new managers, like this is the best, this is the best situation because you're or going to, you're already going to have this, this context and value. And you can help help the people that you hire immediately, at least in terms of the like domain knowledge and company knowledge that you have. And so the parts that you're going to need the most guidance and help with is around like the people, um, the people skill aspect of it, right? So do you have a framework for hiring? What like like making it super clear about the criteria that you're looking for and understanding if you haven't been a manager before, at least like hypothesizing about the type of manager that you would be, what's your management style, some of those same three things that we were just talking about, like, you know, do you prioritize collaboration? Do you prioritize autonomy? Do you prioritize speed? And be very honest about that with your candidates, uh, both when you're interviewing and also when they start. My personal, um, like, philosophy, by the way, if you're interested, as an example, um, I tell all candidates um, and people who start reporting to me that my approach is fave, feedback, autonomy, and vision. And feedback, I'm very I'm always going to tell you what I think, good or bad, and I expect you to do the same for me. So I should be bi-directional. Autonomy, I believe very strongly in autonomy. It's not given from day one, of course. There's that context to get. If they're a more junior person, like you know, there's going to be a little bit more handholding. But the like the long-term vision is that they make as many decisions as they can without me. And the part that I really add value to is the vision. And this is sort of the systems thinking that we were talking about in the beginning. How does their work apply to the larger product, apply to the larger company and business, um, and making sure that all the priorities and things that, that I want them to work on or that they want to work on, like align to what, um, what their peers and what the business needs. So that's like kind of a high level. I do think it changes a little bit 
you know, if you're like starting your own company or you're like, you know, building out sort of like a cross-disciplinary team from, from scratch. But there's also a lot that's the same. For instance, those same principles that I have, like feedback, autonomy, and vision, I think as a product leader and cross-disciplinary things, like I found that like translates pretty well. I still like to be very honest with my cross-functional peers. I still like to give them as much autonomy as possible, um, especially in the domains that they're the expert in. Um, and I still think it's product's responsibility to provide the strategic vision and context and what we're doing and why it's important and how it sort of levels up to the other things that are going across the company. Got it. I love that. So Alex, you've had an extensive career. Um, you've worked at so many different companies. Uh, what's the future like for Alex and what are you looking forward to? Yeah, so I am definitely pursuing my next opportunity right now. My expertise is all in the consumer space, right? 12 years of consumer experience at, at all these big brands that you know that you mentioned, Microsoft and TV Guide, Metacritic, GameSpot, GameFAQs, Shopify, and more. And uh, so I definitely want to stay in the consumer space. And you probably also could tell like uh, people management is, is, a, is a big passion of mine, coaching and helping people become better in their craft. So definitely a people manager at a consumer focused company, the ideal. And, uh, and I think most interesting, I mean, it's sort of obvious, like everybody says this, but, uh, but definitely something in the AI space as well. And we're really at this seminal moment right now, uh, where all these much like, you know, when the iPhone and the app store came out, uh, where, where all these amazing new companies are, are going to emerge, um, as part of this technology revolution. And so, yeah, I'd love to be, I'd love to be a part of that. So yeah, if anybody listening has any uh, interesting interesting roles uh, in the consumer space, AI or people management related, definitely hit me up. I'd love to chat. Where can they find you? Yes, the best way is probably on my LinkedIn, which is uh, AJ Weingart or Alex. Uh, just you know, search for Alex Weingart, Alexander Weingart, uh, or via email, uh, ajweingart at gmail.com. All right. Um. So this is my last question here. Everyone who comes on the show, I ask them this one question. What's one yeah. weakness that you've turned into your strength? Yeah, this is a, this is a really good one. So uh, I'll never forget that the first annual review I ever had at Microsoft, my manager told me I had no poker face and that what, what I felt was super visible on my face, which, which is like not very good often, like strategically sometimes, like if you're in a meeting and somebody says something that you think is dumb, like you don't want to like be conveying that in your face. Right. And yeah, it was, uh, I, I'm, I'm better about my words. I don't like word vomit as much. Um, but, uh, I have very little like control over like what my face shows. And I thought about it deeply and, and, and really made like a lot of attempts to, to sort of like become more, I guess you could say composed and whatnot. And to a certain extent, like I, I did make strides into it, but for the most part, about a six months to a year later, I was talking with my, with a new manager. Uh, about it. And he was like, honestly, that should be a strength. Like you are a very genuine person. You people are always going to know what you think, as long as you make it clear that, you know, you care about the person, right. Which you, which I do, like, there's never any instances where I like, don't care about the people who I'm working with and I want the best for them. Like that can be part of your brand. And that's how I've, that's how I've made it. Every person I start to work with, whether they're reporting to me or they're my manager or a cross-functional peer, I make it super clear. I'm like, look, for better or for worse, you're always going to know what I think, but also know that like, it's always going to be because I want the best for the, the product, the business and for you. And if there's an, and if there are instances where, you know, we need to disagree and commit, 
like, you know, the disagree part is going to be there, but once I've made the commitment, like we're going to go with it. Right. And I, and if it's not the way that I propose, I'm, I'm going to do my best to hope that it succeeds. And, um, and frankly, like this still comes back here and there. My most recent manager told me that I like, I get deflated when, you know, when the, the direction that I think is the right direction to go, whether it's my idea or not, like we go with an different direction. And unfortunately, like, like I can't change that. I, I, or rather I won't change it. I think it's part of who I am. But, uh, but what I pledge is that like, I'll always, as I said, like, I'm always going to want the best for the people around me. I'm always going to commit to the things, even if I initially disagreed with them. Um, so yeah, that's how I turned the sort of like no poker face into a strength. I love that. I love that. Transparency makes things move much yeah. faster. Totally. Um, totally. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alex. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm looking forward to sharing this conversation with our audience. Likewise, Dwayne, thanks for having me. Uh, and I hope everybody found, found some value from this. Awesome. And thanks for listening to the Got 10 Minutes podcast. To stay in touch, please follow us on LinkedIn or the podcast app you're listening to us on right now for more episodes. Take care. Bye.